Hello, this is Melissa Hale Spencer, the editor of the Altamont Enterprise, here today with Alan Fierro, and I invited him in because there was an exciting announcement yesterday, July 20th, the Pine Bush Preserve Commission and the United States Fish and Wildlife and the New York State Department of Environmental Conservation all got together for a press conference to say that the Carner Blue Butterfly had exceeded its federal recovery threshold. And I thought, who better to talk about the Carner Blue than Alan Fierro? And when I called him up to set up this interview, I discovered this is also going to be a retrospective on his life as a teacher because he has just retired from decades of educating students in science and particularly about the Carner Blue at Farnsworth Middle School and is on the point of jumping off for a long trip to Italy. So welcome, Alan. Hi. Thank you, Melissa. <laughs> Can you just tell us just a little about yourself before we get into the nitty-gritty on the Carner Blue? Why did you become a teacher? Why did you dedicate basically your entire adult life to this? Well, I guess, Melissa, I was very lucky. Even when I was in high school, I knew that I wanted to be a teacher. I think it was the influence of other teachers upon me that made such a big impact on me when I was in school. Um, my elementary teachers, my high school teachers, um, it seemed like a profession that I'd love to get into. And it's for two reasons. One's I, I love working with children. And also uh, I went into biology because I was very interested in working and learning about animal behavior and, and animals also. So it fit both of my uh, interests. And I know you were briefly an administrator and you mm -hmm. just wanted to get back in the classroom. So for you, that's a very important thing. Yes, I, I I just think working with children is the most important part of, of the job, and I was t it was too isolating when I was a supervisor. I wanted to be with the kids. So tell me, how did you get interested? And you, over the years, we've written dozens of times about grants you've gotten to have the Farnsworth students be in the field and learning and even, I think, breeding the Carner Blue. Mm -hmm. what, what, what interested you in that? Well, it turns out when we, I was first starting work at Farnsworth, uh, we were doing an educational program called Foundational Approaches to Science Teaching, which was out of the University of Hawaii. And um, as part of that study, you would set up a little ecology area in your school backyard and study the ecology of that small area. And one of the labs we did was to scarify some of the seeds, and we actually imported the seeds from Hawaii to scarify what does that mean, scarify? Basically just to break the seed coat in order for it to germinate. Okay. So my, I guess my great epiphany was that why was I studying a plot of ground in the backyard of the school, and why was I scraping seeds from Hawaii when we had the Albany pine bush right across the street? And um, at that time, I contacted Save the Pine Bush, and John Wolcott and Jerry Muller just agreed to take us on a field trip. And that was the turning point because um, it was unbelievable. Everything I had been teaching in ecology was right there for us in our own backyards. And so the kids could actually, instead of just talking about it and reading about it, they could learn all of the concepts that we were studying in their own environment right there. And that was what started me off. So you've kind of produced several generations of environmentalists. What are some of those basic concepts that you taught and how did they play out in the pine bush? Well, I think it's... Um, part of almost like citizenship. It's basically instilling in children the idea that they can make a difference in their world. Um, every little bit that you do adds up. So when we go out, we used to, like, for example, we would count how many trees we girdled. And each child would only, let's say, girdle one or two. 
But then when we went back to the classroom, we added up our numbers. We had anywhere from 100 to 500. So and can you tell our listening our listeners what Girdling Trees is and why you do it? Well, one of our major projects at the pine bush was to girdle aspen trees. Aspen trees are a native tree to the pine bush, but since uh, the fire suppression began, um, they became overcrowded. And the thing about aspen trees, they're actually clonal. So if you cut one down, it grows back two. However, if you remove a ring of bark from the aspen tree, it will not re-sprout. And so our students would go out into areas of heavy aspen clones and girdle by taking rings of bark off the tree. And uh, as I said, each child does one or two, but in the years that I've been there, we probably girdled over 50,000 trees. And I think we opened up 25 acres of land. And that's just, as I said, one student at a time. I think empowering students to understand that um, they have a role in the world around them is one of the most important points that I've helped, uh, that's helped, the Pine Bush has helped me use to, to teach children. Well, what a great lesson to learn. Just a little background for listeners. The Pine Bush Preserve is a pine barren, and it is, I think, now over 3,300 acres, and it is maintained by things like controlled burn to keep this open and keep the loop in. Maybe you can just tell us a little about the Carner Blue itself. I know I, I looked up, it was first identified by Vladimir Nabokov, who's known as a novelist, mm-hmm. um, but apparently was also an entomologist. And in the 1940s, in um, a hamlet of Carner, New York, he named this butterfly. But can you just tell us a little about it and its life cycle? And oh, sure. Well, uh, that's the one thing I tell my kids, too. I said this could have been called the Gildan blue butterfly, too, because it was found right here. Um, back in those days, um, there was actually a train that went through the pine bush, and um, entomologists, lepidopterists, and other scientists would come to study in our own backyard, as I said. And um, um, when Nabokov came, he identified the butterfly as a different species, and so far he named it after the location. It's a relative of the Melissa blue, which is a more common blue butterfly out west. Um, the thing about the Carner blue butterfly is the only plant that its larva can eat is lupin, so it's it's very as only one source of larval food. So it's very important that the more lupin there are, the better chance there'll be a Carner blue. Um, they're only about the size of a quarter when they're fully their wings wings are fully spread. Um, they basically have two broods per season, which means um, their eggs overwinter. So all winter, the eggs are under the snow. When they hatch out in April, they would they become a caterpillar, a chrysalis, and then adult. And then a second generation is born. And that second generation produces eggs. And by the end of August, those eggs go back onto the soil again to overwinter. Now, when I was a kid and this will show my age, <laughs> 64, there were thousands and thousands of them. You kind of thought of them like almost not important. They were almost in your way. There were so many of them. Mm-hmm. And um, they were apparently in 2007 fewer than 1,000 in the Pine Bush Preserve. And the announcement yesterday was that in 2016 that number got up to 15,000. So if you could tell us what you know, and maybe scientists don't know this, why did it decline? And then what are some of the efforts that I know you know about to, to bring it back? Well, it's funny. If you look back at pictures of the Gillen area back in the 40s and 50s, it looks like you're driving through, in the Pine Bush area, it looks like you're driving through Cape Cod. It was all open dunes. Almost all the trees that you see there are less than 40 or 50 years old. So for years, it, there's a famous quote um, 
uh, a helicopter pilot flew between Schenectady and Albany back in the 40s, and he, when he looked down, he said, this doesn't belong here. It's, a, it's, it's an area like lost in time. Um, what happened was that the Thruway and the Northway and all of the development that came basically brought people to the pine bush where even my, my wife, who was not that old, says when she was a child, there would be fires in the pine bush and people would just let them burn. Yeah. But nowadays, because of the homes, that had to stop. So basically, the ecology that had existed for over 10,000 years was changed in the last 50 years by basically people moving into the area and uh, taking over the area. And that's where when the, the, uh, when the Carnival Blues began to decrease is when that development began and all the, tr- the cars and traffic and homes and businesses took and over so the, the area. so the lupin went away and they didn't yeah. have what they needed it was, to survive. It's quite amazing what has happened because when we first started working with the Pine Bush Commission, um, our first project was to build enclosures and basic, or well, exclosures they were called actually. We would just, the kids would go out and build a fence, a 40 by 40 fence around lupin patches. There were so few lupin patches in the Pine Bush that the deer browse was eliminating the few lupins that there were and so the commission said, we have to protect these few little populations. So the kids went out, and over a three-year period, we built 10 of these large fenced areas. And so we were protecting these tiny little areas of lupin plants. And now it's, you drive through the pine bush, and you see fields of blue, which is just yeah, amazing. It's beautiful. And, and yeah. that's, you know, they have to have the food. So it's, as the kids learn about food chains and food cycles, you have to have the basic food. So... Before the Carna Blues could recover, the Lupin had to recover, and that's what they've done. They've been able to bring back, op- opening the fields by burning, clearing, um, putting back the native plants like the Lupin, and then the Carna Blues could follow. And this is apparently a federal program. There are mm-hmm. 13 different units that mm-hmm. go all the way. It includes Wisconsin, yep. Indiana, Michigan, Minnesota, New Hampshire, Ohio, and three units in New York. Mm-hmm. Are they all doing as well with the recovery as um, this, or is this somehow exceptional? Or I... I don't honestly know. I was at the Indiana um, site, and again, that was years ago, and again, it was very slow progress. I think the Pine Bush is probably one of the more successful sites because of the amount of the Pine Bush Commission, amount of work that the Pine Bush Commission is doing, but I'm not sure about all of the yeah. other sites. Well, tell us. I know one of the things, I you had your students... Um, Breathing, mm-hmm. and I think they practiced with other kinds of butterflies. Yep. I know you have a big monarch release every year, yep. but tell tell us about what they learned and what they did, and how you got certification to do that. Well, basically, when um, we started working with the Pymish Commission, we realized that um, basically it was not just the carnival butterfly, but many things that needed help. So we decided to make our school a center of information about the about the pine bush and about restoration. And as the center of that, we created the but- I cre- well, I helped create the butterfly station. Well, let's interrupt. Take a little side trip. We'll get back to the okay. breeding. Tell us about the butterfly station because that we we write about that every year and it's wonderful. Well, it's kind of we took a real long, long term view of what had to be done. Um, when I went for some of the first grants, they asked me, "What would your dream be?" And my dream was that we could actually have students trained to become so proficient at raising butterflies that someday, if we needed to raise carna blue butterflies, we could. And so we began Butterfly Station, which was a, um, a student-run butterfly house at our school. And every year we'd have student volunteers to work during the summer, and one main part of that was breeding um, native butterflies so that we could prove that students at middle school level could um, successfully work with propagating the butterflies 
And so for about eight to 10 years, we raised monarchs and painted ladies and swallowtails and spicebush swallowtails and um, assorted other butterflies. And it came to pass, unbelievable that we could predict it, that there came to pass that the pine bush began a um, captive rearing program. And since we had been so closely tied with them, they asked if we'd like to participate in the program. And so for three years, students at Farnsworth actually raised carnival blue butterflies for the commission. That's remarkable. It was, it was a great, it's, it's like you can never, pl- I, c- I could never have said 10 years ago that it would actually come to fruition. And in fact, we were sort of wishing it hadn't come to fruition because it meant that the carnival blues were in trouble. For us to have to breed them meant yeah. that they were in trouble. So we were preparing just in case. Um, the kids did amazingly well. Um, we first started trying to bring carnivores into the school and have them breed for us in the school, and we didn't have much success. I think our first year we only had 100 eggs um, that were hatched out from our four butterflies. So our last two years, um, the butterflies actually were bred in um, New Hampshire, and they brought us back um, the uh, caterpillars as soon as they hatched. And the kids were able to raise the caterpillars through the pupil stage for release. And um, we, out of the, I think one year out of the 115, 104 made it. And the second year out of 109, 108 of the caterpillars made it, which is unbelievable because when you think in the wild, it's usually only a few out of 100 will actually make it. So this allowed the Pymish Commission to put back a tremendous number of pupa and uh, produce a lot of adults from those pupa. Yes, and the Butterfly Station also had an educational component where these young, I don't want to call them children, they're so adult, they lead these tours, these middle school students, and teach the public who come for free to look at the native plants and think about maybe planting some of your own mm-hmm. that would help propagate this species, and also just learning about the biology of it. It's, mm-hmm. it's just a wonderful... It was fun for yeah. many kids. Yeah. And I also think... it. And maybe you have had students come back and tell you about the effect it must have had on individual students. We did one story, I was trying to find it but couldn't, about a, a girl that wrote a book about mm-hmm. the experience. And it was just beautiful. She illustrated it and, and talked about what it meant to her. But have students come back to you over the years? And um, can you share any stories like it's, that? It, one of the, the sadnesses of being a teacher is that, especially uh, from uh, earlier grades, is that we really we send the children out, but we really never get a lot of feedback from kids in the, that have gone out into the future. But I've been very lucky um, to set several times I've been able to co- I'm in contact with students or students have contacted me about careers in the pine bush. Um, it's kind of funny. The person who took over the butterfly station for me, Jennifer Phillips, actually was a student of mine in butterfly station oh, so wow. that was that was really nice and um i've i've uh, i went to the pine bush commission last week and one of my students ex-students is interning there um i've heard of another student that's out west um, again studying to become a biologist so um, a lot of biologists i hope have uh, been produced by our, our program yeah i would imagine it would have a profound effect so here's a question that might sound offensive but why should people care? You know, if the carnival blue butterfly disappeared from the earth, what? Why should people care? Okay, what I, what I many many students have asked me that same question. They say, well, is it a major food source? No. Well, what I tell them is that um, every life that is exists currently on our planet is the result of a millennium of, or millions of years of evolution. And every single creature on our planet has developed to fit a certain niche. And to do so, um, they've developed 
um, behavioral characteristics, biological characteristics. And we don't even know what potential these characteristics have for us. The example I often give is with the hermit crab. Um, the hermit crab is an ugly-looking creature, but they found that um, the blood can be used as a thinner uh, to prevent heart attacks. If that animal, animal had become extinct, many, many lives might have been lost. We have no conception, really, of what each of these organisms have. I tell the kids, well, you know, those carnivore eggs can survive over winter through harsh, harsh conditions. What chemicals, what processes does that have? And what maybe someday we could use that to figure something out that would help us. But once they're gone, they'd be gone. It's a giant, unbelievably intricate puzzle. And you really don't see how each piece fits sometimes until it's gone. So it's, it's, it's not like if the Carnablues left the planet, would I definitely know that the world would come to an end or anything like that. But it's just one more piece of the puzzle that would be missing. And I think that we might never know what we lost. And we're losing so many pieces so rapidly in this era. And I'm trying again. <laughs> I couldn't find the story. I think you once explained to me something about a symbiotic relationship that went on between the Carter Blue and was it? Ants. Ants, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Tell, tell about that well, because they're a, just in her. They're yeah. things that we don't think of that the other creatures and the mm-hmm. planet rely on each other well it's funny what i tell the kids is that the carnablues provide uh, a soda or sugar water for ants and so what the caterpillar will will do is when uh, ants approach it certain species of ants it will release a tiny drop of sugar water and the ants will drink that sugar water and in return protect the uh carnablue caterpillar so it's a mutualistic relationship just that is that has evolved Um, and again it's just one of the many many interactions that occur between all of the organisms um, in the world and in the pine bush. Yeah. Well, getting away a little from the pine bush now, I was just amazed over the years how you involved your students in active science. I remember um, you had a memorial site in that butterfly station courtyard garden. Mm-hmm. Um, could you tell us a little about what that project was? Yep. and? Well, what happened was Central Park Middle School in Schenectady contacted us, and together with them, we did a project with NASA called Garden to the Stars. And um, basically what the program was going to do was going to, um, we were raised um, seeds, we had seeds from our plants at the, at the school that were native plants, and we divided them into two sections, and one section went up with the uh, spacecraft, um, and the other half were to be planted at our school. And um, when the shuttle um, exploded, we... And we, your kids were watching that, right? Yeah. I, I, yeah, I we, mean, that must have been, yeah. you know, it was to have kids one, riveted on it, a screen watching what they one, think is their science experiment. Right. That one was, that was the one that occurred. Um, I think it didn't occur during the day. That one was, uh, that was the challenger. That was okay. the Columbia that, that was the thing we're on. So I don't think okay. the kids got to right. see right. that. But, but yeah, it was very traumatic. Um, and one of, the, one of the things that got me was... We got a letter from NASA, and they were uh, they were sorry. They wanted to say that how sorry they were that our children were not. We didn't. They didn't want the kids to feel bad that our, that our program did not go on. And I just felt, you know, there was such a bigger picture here that. Um, but for them to take that consideration to worry about our children at this time, how they would be affected by this, whereas we had lost so many heroes um, that day, and what we did was um, we created a memorial for them. Um, we had a stone donated. Or a stone, um, we got a, a grant for a stone, and uh, we had each student um, do a biography um, and a eulogy on each of the astronauts. 
and we dedicated an area of our garden by planting those experimental seeds um, in the garden. It was very pretty. Uh, our chorus sang a beautiful song that had been sung at the uh, funeral. It's called Way Up There, just a glorious song. So we got a lot of children involved, and um, I think it was a, a nice tribute to the Yeah, to I'll the never forget that ceremony. I'd never seen anything like it. Yeah. It was it's stunning. But um, some you've also, as an educator, thought about larger issues. I know that you did a series for our newspaper, and if you could just kind of recap that, because they had some you know, very important, um, not just that you were handing down tenets of things or poking holes in things, you, you wrote with a voice of experience having been in the classroom for so many years. Well, that was when the new APPR teacher rating system right. had come mm-hmm. out. And, and just to tell our listeners, that was... Um, Let's see. APPR stands for. I'm not sure. Um, if I it's a, a system to evaluate. Um, I know this inside out. I've written it so many times, and I can't think. Um, shoot. It's just teacher. It's basically it's to teacher. evaluate teachers right. and administrators. Yep. Yes. And schools are graded also. But the problem was that it was it was it was very it was written and it was blatantly faulty and the the series of of articles I wrote was to just to express how there were so many things in it that were wrong um, that I wanted people to understand why it it wasn't fair it wasn't uh, it wasn't um, statistically correct and it wasn't pedagogically correct and so I just want I felt that people had to know that because um, using it would have has been and even even since it has been continued for was continued for it was very devastating to teachers and i think right now it's in a little bit of a, a hiatus because they're trying to figure out how they can put it back together but it was basically a disaster for teachers and i think for children too because the tests became even more high stakes for everyone and that was not i think good for anyone yeah and I think I remember that you also had really strong feelings on homework. Oh, yes. And I just have to preface this question with people are so attuned to test scores these days, and the science test scores from Farnsworth Middle School were always way high in the top category. So just to hear this answer, <laughs> um, how, what are your feelings on homework? That- well, what, I think what happened was homework it's, it became overused. Um, I my own children and I, I hear of children who go home after school and spend hours upon hours uh, sitting at a desk doing homework. My feeling is that as an educator, my job is to teach the student during the school day and that's their job. Um, and they work a full day when they're in school. And when children go home, I believe they should be outside playing. Um, I think they should be getting exercise. They should be doing social things. Um, and so I looked into the research as best as I could, and from what I found, there's very little um, statistical evidence that giving a lot of homework helps to improve anything other than the kid's homework score, which is basically you're grading the kid on their own homework, which is not really truly getting them to learn anything else besides those facts for that day. Um, um, I think that, as I said, I think it's just been overdone. So my belief is that children should maybe spend uh, 20 minutes on math and 20 minutes reading, and that should be the maximum homework for a middle school student. Um, the rest of the time they should cover um, exploring their own interests going further on. Well, also, too, the high scores that the Farnsworth kids have had in science over these last years that they've had the standardized test. Can you just talk about what hands-on learning does for that? Because that has been your hallmark 
way ahead of <laughs> of the current buzzword on that. Well, when people think of science, sometimes they think it's a collection of facts, and that's basically a tiny, tiny part of what it means to learn science, especially today when information is exploding around us. The basic tenet of science that's most important for people is that to learn how science progresses, how scientific truths come to be, the process by which science is done. And that's what is most important to teach children because that's what will be useful for them in the future. They can always look up the facts. They can always memorize new facts. But if they don't understand the process by which science grows, um, they really can't understand where they came from or what the value is. Um, And so when we teach, hopefully, and the new Next Generation Science Standards have um, brought this to, to bear, is we're really teaching children the bigger ideas, the processes, the practices of teachers, the, um, the underlying themes of teaching um, are all more going to be stressed in the future because, as I said, the content is only one small part of the picture. It's more important that the kids can look at a world, be skeptical, um, understand what statistics mean, understand how things are proven, and then make decisions about what they think is right and wrong from that. Perfect, because I was going to ask you to put in a nutshell, for those of us who are not scientists, what, what that is, but I think you just sort of did that. <laughs> it's, you know, yeah. it's, it's really looking at things closely and take, make, making empirical observations, um, checking that they're not random, that there is enough of a base to statistically, and then making a decision, rather than just making a decision based on folklore or quick off-the-cuff idea. So it's hard because... Um, one thing that I think happens a lot is that we use words in our everyday language that are scientific, but we use them incorrectly like theory and hypothesis. And to have a theory or hypothesis, it takes a lot, a lot of work. They just don't pop up. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what people have to realize is that even when a scientist says he has a theory, that is a tremendous amount of positive evidence. Otherwise, it's not a theory. So it's it's not just off the cuff, I think this. It has to have a tremendous amount of background. And even a hypothesis. So um, I, I just want to interrupt here. So yep. you're saying people that say put down quote the theory of evolution they think of the word theory in a popular sense rather yes. than the layers and right. layers of research that it's, that a, yep. it's based on okay go so, ahead and that's, so that's why it's important yeah. to teach kids about the, how processes of science work and how the practices of science and engineering work because then they understand how powerful some of these ideas are and some and how but on the other hand also how our world changes that uh, it's fluid science is not based on set things things change so we were constantly learning, constantly growing, which is, again, part of, the, of what the science processes show. Well, the good news for children in the area is Alan Fierro has said that he retired for three weeks, and <laughs> he's now going to be, with the start of the next school year, um, working at the Voorheesville Elementary School. And can you tell us a little about what you're going to be doing there? Well, it's pending board approval, so I have to say that. I'm not, okay. I'm not officially Sorry, there yet. That's okay. No, but I hope. I really do hope <laughs> I'll be there. Um, Voorheesville is lucky. Um, a remnant of when the school, I think, was a K-12 school is they have one old science lab left, and it's still intact. And um, there's a position there for a teaching assistant to assist um, all of the teachers through the grade levels to set up and create labs for the students. And I just thought of what more perfect job in the world would there be than um, doing labs with students all, days long, all day long, all different ages. So I'm just ecstatic that I'll be able to work with the teachers there. 
Yeah, that's great. Well, our half an hour has gone very fast. Ooh, that was fast. <laughs> are there any parting thoughts that you have? I haven't asked sometimes the most important thing. Well, um, I just think um, there's, the Pine Bush Commission has done a tremendous amount of work, and the numbers are excellent, but um, it's still, even though the, the thresholds have been, there's, there's still a lot of work to do to make sure that this um, and other organisms in the Pine Bush will be saved. Um, it takes a tremendous amount of work to maintain the areas that they're doing, and I still would like to see the numbers up to the 3,000 populations per subpopulation in about eight different populations. So I'm looking for 24,000 butterflies before I'm going to um, say that it, we've hit that threshold. But, so you're saying it's a long way from being off the endangered list, yes. but it's certainly it's moving. a oh, it's moving step in the tremendous. right direction. It's, again, in the last 10 years, it's, it's unbelievable. It's tremendously what they've done. And does it make you personally feel proud? I mean, I would think... Um, you know, this philosophy that you're imparting to your students that one person can make a difference, you certainly <laughs> seem to be a model of that. Do you, do you feel good that, you know, this it, is... It is, but I tell the kids, when they ask me how many trees I girdled, I say, I'm not girdling any because it's not me. It's not about me. It's about the kids, and I want them to understand that. But when I look back at all the things that my children have done, I am, I'm quite proud of what they did, and that makes me. That does make me very happy. And seeing the success in the pine bush and that we were a part of that also makes me feel wonderful too. Well, it's just so nice these days to have good news because so often we're writing about environmental disasters and to see that humans can collectively decide that they want to reverse some damage they've caused or save a species and they can actually do it is, I think, inspiring. It's a wonderful success story. Yeah. It is. So thank you. Oh, you're welcome. 